I'm reading for two different chapters. There are two different speakers. In chapter 20, Zophar is the speaker. In chapter 21, Job is the speaker. Um, and interestingly, I could stop pretty much anywhere in here after the first five verses and after the first seven over here. But uh, I'll, I'll try to point that out and explain what I mean. So just hang with me, and um, hopefully this will become clearer as we go. We'll start at verse 1 of chapter 20, Job chapter 20, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for, but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Now, guys, I could go on and read the rest of that chapter, but it's the same thing. Um, it's the, the speaker, Zophar, establishing a principle that he mentions in verse 5, that the exalting of the wicked is short. And he spends the whole chapter giving you, his children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will give back his wealth. That, that's, that's the rest of the chapter. He's, he's describing and teasing out the principle that he had mentioned in verse 5. The same thing happens in chapter 21. Let's go there. This is Job speaking, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. Gang, the rest of that chapter is the same kind of language. He is, Job is, teasing out the statement that he makes in verse 7. Why is it that the wicked live and reach old age? Why is it that they spend their days in prosperity? And the whole chapter is just rephrasing that one question. Now, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. 
Guys, I, I read you from both of these chapters because whereas there are some very distinct dissimilarities, there is one similarity that I, I, I wanted to point out. Um, the similarity in both of these chapters is that they're both talking about the wicked. Now, um, the difference is that Job's friends, as represented by Zophar in chapter 20, Job's friends think Job is the wicked. Now, of course, as you might expect, Job, Job thinks otherwise. Um, I, I only want to spend just, just a little time with Job's friends in chapter 20 because really we've, we've covered that graceless ground before. I, the bulk of our time, I, I want to spend with Job's comments in verse 21. But I, I want you to notice that they have two perspectives on the wicked. And, um, and, and I hope that you'll find, I hope that you'll find at least, um, the one, comments on both profitable for you as we, as we debunk one and as we examine the other. Now, taking a look at, at chapter 20, uh, with Job's friends. Again, uh, Job's friends, this is consistent throughout the whole book. Job's friends want to explain Job's situation entirely along conventional, predictable lines. They even say in verse 4, well, you got it, but in verse 4, do you not know this from of old since man was placed on earth? That is, Job, it's always been like this. Everybody knows that this is true. Well, well, what is it? What is it that everybody knows is true? He mentions it in verse 5. That the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. Everybody knows that. Do you not know that it's been like this from time in memoriam, Job? That the, 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 the wicked, the wicked will will get theirs, and it'll come quickly. Now, now gang, um, their approach—that is, the the three friends' approach—it um, it. it it develops, their reasoning develops over very logical um, lines. Um, it, do you know what a syllogism is? Have you ever heard of that word, a syllogism? If you ever went to law school, if you've ever taken any philosophy, you, you probably have heard what a syllogism is. A syllogism is a, is a carefully, logically developed argument. That's all it is. But it has three component parts. A syllogism. This thing called a syllogism has three component parts. It has a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And Job's three friends are a great illustration. Let me, let me show you. The major premise on the part of Job's three friends, which, which is wrong, but this is, this is the way they think. Their, their major premise is all suffering is a result of God's judgment on wickedness. That's a conviction of theirs. All suffering is the result of God's judgment on wickedness. That's the major premise. It's flawed, it's wrong, but that's that's their premise. Here's the minor premise. Job is suffering. Can you come up with the conclusion? then the obvious, logical conclusion is Job is wicked. If 
all suffering is the result of God's judgment on wickedness, and Job is suffering, then Job is wicked. <laughs> it's kind of neat, concise, tidy, isn't it? It's wrong. But it's logical enough. Of course, Job disagrees with his three friends, but he is quick to admit that he can't explain his situation. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, because he can't explain it, he finds himself just massively confused. He asks, why me? And we'll see that later in this other chapter. But why is this happening to me? And guys, secular psychology has two answers to that why me question. Their, their first suggestion is um, pure randomness, um, bad luck, um, pure chance, bad environment. Their other suggested possibility is, you brought this on yourself. Just like Job's three friends. You're, you're, you're suffering like this because you brought it on yourself. Zophar's message in chapter 20 is the same old, same old. We've seen it, or it's in there for 20 chapters. It'll go on for another 10 or so. These, these three, we'll call them Christian friends of Job, all sound the same. They all sing the same song. They sing in monotone. There's a, they're Johnny One Notes. They, they are united in their scorn for Job, and they are united in their explanation of Job's situation. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing that we, there's, there's not much that you and I fear more than the scorn of our, of our Christian friends. Because those people can be pretty doggone vicious. Especially when, when they think they're dealing with something that's wicked, like, like homosexuality. Or liberals. Or contemporary Christian music. I mean, those people can be, they can be vicious. But you see, because Job's experience doesn't line up with theirs, Job's three friends brand him a wicked man, verse 5. What they're saying is, Job, it's always been like this. The, the exalting of the wicked is, is short. And you're, you're, ta- you're our... Classic illustration of that of that principle, Job. You know, guys, uh, that kind of approach is something you see in 21st century evangelicalism, too. And it is 21st century evangelicalism at its worst. It's piling on. It's judgmentalism. It's the kind of behavior that has given the Christian church a bad name. And, and Mrs. O'Hare is correct. We often find ourselves shooting our own wounded. But guys, in addition to that very unfortunate approach, there's some, there's some enormous mistakes embedded within it. That this mentality of the three friends, there's some huge mistakes inside of it. Let me, let me mention two. First of all, they misdefine wicked. Not knowing that they too are wicked. Guys, 
The proof of my wickedness is not found in my circumstances. It's found in my heart. So life is going pretty good for you? Does that mean you're not wicked? Guys, I don't look at the outside to discover my wickedness. I look at my inside. What the three friends are doing is, oh, you're in this kind of mess, then that's wicked. And uh, so they evaluate wickedness from outside in instead of from inside out. Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, is a religion of the inside out, not the outside in. Christianity never asks you to hang on little things on the outside of your life, like church attendance and tithing, so that you can become a Christian. It never does that. But somehow, people have gotten that impression. That Christianity is some kind of, as long as you change your outside behaviors, you're fine. That's exactly what these guys want to do. There's another mistake they make. And the mistake is that they cannot conceive of a God who would be merciful to the wicked. They never mention that. Not once. Not in 32 chapters. Not, not one of them ever mentions. It never crosses their mind. That the possibility exists that God might, just might be merciful to the wicked. That's because, ladies and gentlemen, they misunderstand who God is. Now, really, that's, that's kind of the backdrop that I want us to use to look at chapter 21. But let, let me say this before we go to chapter 21. If any of that is true of us as a church or as an individual, stop it. For heaven's sake, stop it. It's ugly, ladies and gentlemen. And it's all it's all produced by, by faulty reasoning. Although logical, faulty, unbiblical reasoning. All of that tendency to judge and that pharisaical attitude, that measuring people by the outside... It's all ugly. And, and all I can say is just quit it. Might it never be mentioned among us. And if we're guilty, for heaven's sakes, own it and repent of it. So that we don't resemble these three guys. Now, but that is their, that is their attitude about wickedness. We come now to Job. And as you can imagine, his, um, his views are vastly different from theirs. Uh, actually, um, he never considers himself to be the wicked. Um, but as you as you read these first opening verses of chapter 21, you can almost sense his thought process. L- look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 21, guys. As for me, is my complaint against me, and why should I not, why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Now, stay with me. He's, he's bemoaning the, the, the fact of his situation. And then in one of those why me moments, he thinks, wait a minute. Why am I suffering? And then verse 7 And why do the wicked live and reach old age and grow mighty in power? Okay, what he's doing here is, in essence, asking, why am I suffering? 
and not them. <coughs> I mean, this doesn't make any sense. Why, why, why I'm suffering and the wicked, why, I mean, the wicked, the wicked seem to get away with, I mean, look, look at verse 13. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. Gang, what you have here is a man trying to understand his own suffering, his own pain. Have you ever done that? You, you, you find yourself in the midst of a circumstance and you don't necessarily know where it came from. It, it's, a, it's a product of injustice, perhaps. And, um, and in the midst of you trying to figure out your own dilemma, what, what kind of naturally comes to mind is, wait a minute, why am I experiencing this and they're not? Job is in essence the first to ask that age-old question, why do the wicked prosper? Gang, this book addresses that question a whole lot, several times. Uh, There's a whole psalm about it, Psalm 73, written by Asaph. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that we live in a world, ladies and gentlemen, where the wicked seems to get away with it? You know, um, that's a tough question. And it is addressed several times in this, in this book. And, and every time we find ourselves in a situation where we're wondering why the wicked are prospering, it, it gives rise to all kinds of confusion and doubt. You know, I really wonder, is there any suffering of which doubt is not a part And the doubt that comes in the midst of my suffering is often produced by this this conundrum of why it is that the wicked seem to get away with all that they're doing. And I'm not. Why, why, Why am I suffering? Gang, Job's thinking seems to run something like this. If good things happen to wicked people, and they do, then there is ample reason to suspect that bad things can happen to righteous people. Which, by the way, you may recall, Job's friends think that that's not, that's not possible. That is, bad things happening to righteous people. But they do. Why? Why? And you know what answer Job gets? 
silence. That's the answer he gets. He gets no answer. Gang, what, what Job says in this chapter and in, in, in other places in this book, what he says in a nutshell is basically, when it comes right down to it, life makes no sense. And whereas Job's three friends are wrong, All Job has to offer us is, is puzzlement. The way that Job's three friends explain it in chapter 20 is wrong. But when you come to dealing with Job and his understanding, the, the, only, the only thing that he can come up with is, why is it? Why is it that, that I'm suffering and they're not? you know what, ladies and gentlemen? We're only in chapter 21. That means we're halfway through. And in the rest of the book, you never get an answer to that question. The Bible does give you a way to deal with it, but the Bible never gives you an answer. And Job says that just doesn't make sense. And and oddly enough, not only is Job correct, he seems to be comforted by just understanding that a lot of what I face, I, I just have no explanation for it. And and here's, I think, a piece of counsel that Job would give to folks like us. Um, To 21st century evangelicals, this is a piece of counsel brought to you courtesy of Job. He would tell you something like this. That belief in God does not bring with it an ability to answer all of your questions. Quite the contrary. Mature faith lives with the fact that there is a great deal for which I have no answers. Particularly when it comes to this issue of suffering and pain. And then he would go on to tell you something like this, ladies and gentlemen. He would say that mature faith is a kind of faith that is willing to trust God in the dark. You know, one of uh, one of the heroes around here at Grace Van is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, and I know that most, uh, many of you have read some of C.S. Lewis, and he's written a book called The Problem of Pain, and it's quite quotable. I mean, it's a it's a uh, it's a very good book. But um, there's one quote in it that that I I have used numerous times. This is from C.S. Lewis out of The Problem of Pain, and he says. What we want, no, excuse me, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence about whom, at the end of the day, it might be said, 
a good time was had by all. Well, may I be the first to inform you. We don't have a God like that. Over against all of this systematic tidiness that Job's three friends offer, Job, on the other hand, promotes a God who has not seen fit to give us all the answers to questions that I might ask. But is a God who is still worth loving, still worth obeying, still worth serving, in spite of the fact that he does not give us all the answers to our questions. Guys, isn't that the point of this book? Gang, if I could teach you anything out of the book of Job, it is this one thing. The point of the book of Job is not about suffering. It's not a book about suffering. Here's what it's a book about. It's a book about this question. Can I still love God in the midst of my suffering? That's how the book opens in chapter 1, verse 9. The thing that is at stake is not our human comfort in the midst of all of the difficulties that we might encounter. The thing that's at stake is whether or not God is worth obeying and serving and loving in the midst of my unanswered questions. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the very thing that Satan wants to prove that doesn't exist. That's what chapters 1 and 2 are about. The very thing that Satan wants to prove that doesn't exist is that there are people who love God just because of who He is. What Satan wants to prove is there's no such thing as a person who loves and serves and believes and enjoys a God who has not answered all of his questions. You know, Satan scored that victory in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve were, um, were, were told not to eat of a certain tree. But you know, he didn't tell them why not to eat of the certain tree. He didn't explain himself. He didn't give reasons. He gave them a command that had no explanation, and the point was Am I worth trusting? Even though I haven't answered all your questions. Why do the wicked process even if I haven't answered all your questions? Can you trust me in the dark? Well, can you? Will you? Is he? Not, not is it worth it, but is he worth it? Because I can tell you, my brother and sister in Christ, when it's, when it's your turn, you will be asking why. And the chances are pretty good.
is that you will get the same thing Job got. Silence. And will you obey him then? Just because of who he is. I told you this story years ago. Um, it's an Elizabeth Elliot story. It's a, it's a, it's, I think a wonderful point made. But um, she tells a story about having some friends who lived in the highlands of Wales, and they were sheep herders. They were sheep farmers. And um, she visited them on a particular occasion when it was time for the sheep to be defumigated, or whatever the word is. But I don't know whether this happened annually or periodically, or, or but but uh, what happened is is that, you know, you can imagine a sheep with the coat that they have, with the fiber, the wool fiber that's in, that all kinds of stuff get matted in there, you know, uh, uh, ticks and fleas and parasites and all these vermin that are in there. And, and if they just leave them in there, I mean, you know, the worst case, the, they can kill the sheep. And so we'll just say annually. I don't know that that's right. But on, on an annual basis, they take, the, uh, at this particular sheep farm, they took the sheep and they dipped them in a vat, a big vat, big vat of, of antiseptic or pesticide or something. And they, they take the sheep, the entire sheep, and they, they dip the thing into the vat. And then they, they try to hold its little snout and keep its nose out of the water. But the rest of that, the carcass of that sheep goes underneath that, that antiseptic to, you know, to kill all those things. And, and um, Elizabeth Elliot said, as I stood there and I watched, the thought occurred to me that, that those little sheep were looking up at their, their caregivers and saying, what did I ever do to deserve this? Why are you trying to kill me? I mean, wh- what is going on here? And then she remarked, On not one occasion did any of the farmers ever try to explain it. And then she added, none of their words would have ever consoled a sheep. Gang, all of that makes sense. Until it's your turn in the vat. And then comes all the confusion and all of the questions and all of the doubts and all and, 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 and even anger. And ladies and gentlemen, I dare say that you will never be able to hang on unless and until you see Jesus Christ being faithful to you when God sent him into the vat for you. Guys, when when it's your turn, there are no answers. And all you have to hold on to is what you know about the nature and the character of God And it is my privilege to ask you, is that enough for you?
Is he worth it? Is he worth trusting in the dark? Can you serve and love a God who doesn't explain everything to you? Is it enough that he reigns and that he loves you? Hmm? Is that enough? I'll tell you one more story, and this is it's pretty corny. I got it from another preacher, um, so we'll just blame him. It's a, it's a make-believe story, but um, it's a story about a, um, a woodsman, a, a woodcutter, who was sent into a forest, and his, his assigned task was to level the whole forest, to cut down all the trees in the forest for whatever purpose. And, and um, So as he began to do his job, he noticed that there was a bird who was building a nest in one of those trees for her, a mother bird building her nest for, for her young. And he realized that if he was successful in his task, he was going to cut that tree down and it would kill the bird and the mother and the, 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 the baby birds, et cetera, et cetera. And so he, he goes up to the tree and he takes the blunt end of an axe and he begins to pound on the tree. And, um, and the, the tree, the, the bird looks, the mother bird looks down and, and, and wonders, why is he being so cruel to me? And um, so she picks up and moves to another tree. And so the woodcutter goes over to the other tree and begins to pound on that one. And, and the bird is confused and wonders, why does he hate me? So it happens three or four more times in different trees. And so finally, the, 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 the bird builds her nest in an, in an outcropping of, of rock. And the woodsman, of course, moves on. The point of the story is this, ladies and gentlemen. What tree are you leaning on right now that God is banging on and you all the while are wondering why is God so mean to me when his goal is to get you to find your safety in the rock That bird never got an explanation. But she ended up finding her security in the rock. And ladies and gentlemen, though I do not have all the answers to your why questions, I do know that the reason, or at least one of the reasons, behind so much of our pain is that there is a God who is trying to move us away from the things that we think will give us safety and happiness, but won't. And a God who is trying to move us 
to the one place where the soul is safe. Jesus Christ. And my dear friend, if you are presently in pain, then the right response is to find the rock. I got one more and I'm done. And if you can find this real fast, do. It'd be good for you to see it with your own eyes. It's in the book of Isaiah. It's in uh, verse it's chapter 43. But one of the places that people turn to when they're in pain and, and sorrow and suffering, one of the places they turn to for comfort is Isaiah 43, and, and rightly so and understandably so. And I'm only going to read two verses to you, but let me read. I'd love for you to see them. I'm in the middle of verse 1 of Isaiah 43 where we find these words. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Guys, I want you to notice that the promise that's contained here is that God will walk with us in the midst of whatever fiery trial we're in. But I want you to notice what the promise is not. The promise is not, while we're walking through there, I'll explain everything. He doesn't even say, I'll explain later. He simply says, I'll be in there with you. And you, ladies and gentlemen, we, ladies and gentlemen, we will feel his presence to the degree that you and I know that Jesus Christ was thrown into the ultimate fire for us. The more I know of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the better I will do when it's, when it's my turn in the vat. Everybody gets a turn. Maybe, maybe three or four turns. And will the fact that Yahweh reigns and that he loves you. Will that be enough? In Isaiah 43, the only thing that is even approaching an explanation is this. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Is that enough? Our Father, I I do pray that you will remind us that we don't have all the answers, and it's okay. 
that you have made a commitment to us, a commitment, an everlasting, eternal commitment to us as displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that you have hollered to the world that you are satisfied by raising him from the dead. Now, Father, for my brother or sister who is in some degree of suffering or pain even now, would you remind them that you can be trusted in the dark. Father, if you've brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, would you call them, call them, allow them to see that apart from Jesus Christ, all of life is meaningless. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.